Hi Revive, please join me in the reading of today's scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 5 verses 6 through 7 and verses 21 to 22 and Colossians chapter 3 verses 5 through 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And from Colossians, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. This is the word of the Lord. Revive. This is, um, this is covetousness, part two. And uh, we are in the last of the Ten Commandments. Um, I have one more message for you um, where we'll go back to the theme of how the gospel completes the law, and uh, in so many ways, I actually consider it's, it's, this 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 sermon, which is actually a part two. I kind of consider almost like one really like long sermon. It's almost like it just um, attaches to last week what I talked about, and um, to just give you a little uh, return to last week, um, covetousness. Covetousness. It, when I was growing up, it didn't seem like much of a sin. It's because it seems just so common and it seems more normal, but it's normal because it points to just how little we look toward or even want the things of God or want God in our life. And I depicted that as, as if like the world, like secularity is without heaven is like, is like a grand prison. And even the horizons of what we desire are wholly horizontal. There's no transcendent vertical um, that we would want God or his treasures or his promises. Instead, we constantly are clawing and envying and wanting what somebody else has because our hearts in our emptiness, we want to be filled with the joys of like, I want, I want, I want, I want his car or I want, you know, her, her boyfriend and uh, I wish I had hair like her or I wish I had, you know, like athletic abilities like him. And this is how we think. And uh, it is a profound and deep and penetrating um, comment and about how God sees the brokenness of our lives that goes right down to the depths of our hearts. So I want to get into today's message, and, um, and hopefully, hopefully we can say, talk more about, we can talk about a path toward victory. Um, there's no simple tricks. This is a deep, deep problem of our hearts. Uh, but there is a pathway toward victory through the gospel over the sin which besets all of us, covetousness. And so let's get into it today um, in a message I've entitled, Desiring the Glory and Pleasure of God, Part 1, Covetousness is Idolatry. Covetousness is Idolatry. Part 2, Desire the Glory of Christ and His Kingdom. Do you want to know what? You're supposed to do, if you are able to do it, and without Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm sure you will not be able to do it, but that's the answer. Desire the glory of Christ and his kingdom. 
And I want to close by talking about something that maybe I'm not sure if uh, many of you think about, but there is an exceeding joy from God's pleasure, an exceeding joy from receiving and having God's pleasure wash over you. And I want to talk about that. We all must long for that much more than coveting the things of our neighbor. So let's get into this part one. Um, You know, we have the, the, the commandment, don't covet your neighbor's wife or his ox or his donkey, or his servants. Um, and, uh, you know, and I translated that for you last week. It's, uh, or, his, you know, his job, or his car. You know, we don't, we, we don't use donkeys today. We use, we use cars. And uh, ox is a form of wealth. And, um, but I want to take you to another comment, to commentary in the Bible on, um, on covetousness. And here it is out of, Colossians chapter. This isn't the only place, but you know, here it's, it's a. This is a good and simple place where it's very direct. So here it says, verse five: Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Let's put it this way: What is secular in you? Earthly. The world is only about what happens on this globe. That's secular. It's the same thing. Put to death what is wholly secular in you. Sexual morality impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. And here is the part I want you and I to really get. Covetousness, which is idolatry. Which is idolatry. Idolatry is covetousness. Covetousness is idolatry. And then verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So I I think when we look at this and we're like, passion, which I taught you, is, is disordered desires. We take you know, like less things and we make them more important than bigger things. We take all these desires for earthly treasures and that we want from somebody else and there's much more important than, earth, um, than heavenly treasures, that things of God. And, uh, or we can see how that's really bad. Impurity, sexual morality. But do most of us ever think that covetousness is something for which on account of this, the wrath of God is coming? And that's exactly what the Bible says. I want to say something to you that I'm actually waiting weeks and weeks to talk to you about. And I I said this in the early weeks of of this series about the Ten Commandments. That The Ten Commandments are often seen as having two tables. There's the first set of commandments, which are often seen as the first four commandments, which are about governing our relationship to God. And then the last six commandments, which are more about governing our relationship toward one another. It's like the first part is more about our vertical relationships. Our next part is more about our horizontal relationship. But I said this to you before, they're all about God. <laughs> they're really all about the centrality of God. And here, this, this is really a pointer to this. That which, if you break commandment number six, let's say about murder or hatred or unforgiveness, if you are a liar, if you are an adulterer of all these things, you don't just break that commandment. You always break the first commandment, which is to have no... To, this is why I, we always say it. And every week, I don't know if you've noticed, that the, the, the reading is always has commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't worship any other gods. Don't have any other thing be your God. And when you get to commandment number 10, commandment number 10 is really reminding us that really everything always goes back to God. It always goes back to who do you worship? What do you trust? Where does your heart go for hope and joy and gladness and filling? 
And last week I talked about, you know, when we went to part three of the message, I said that, you know, you need to have a prayer life. And that really you think that what's happening inside of you, inside of you is small and that the world is big, but actually inside of you is infinitely large and the world is small. And the reason the inside of you is so vastly large is because God intended to come and find his home inside of you. And prayer is that place where you go and commune with God so the infinite one and his infinite glory can fill you. But instead, that's not what we do. That's not what we look for. And instead, what we do is we covet. And we want what something else that somebody else has, and that will fill up the empty inside. That's why pr- pr- prayer, I mean, goodness, we, we, prayer, that's like a, a religious activity, but it's not really a religious activity. It's primarily a seeking after great and infinite one to be inside the infiniteness of your inside, which is so empty. But since it feels so empty, we have to fill it up with some glory. And that's what I want to talk about today, that the world inside, if you are feeling empty, you must have something good and special and hopefully even beautiful and wonderful. And the Bible has a word for this, it's just glory. And so some days we just want to fill it up with small glories, a TV show, a song, um, a movie, uh, you know, an in and out hamburger, a small glory. And then we want bigger glories and then we start looking at our neighbors. But you know what? If this is all our world that we do in our world, then you are just trapped inside earthly, what is earthly? It is the prison of secularity and the total of totality of only the glories of the horizontal. And then it will lead you into a beeline that your heart will go toward covetousness. So here's what covetousness is. It's ultimately a form of taking something that someone else has and trying to use it as a God replacement. I don't have enough God. Is there even a God? But I got to have glory. And since, well, I'm going to have glory, well, that wasn't good enough, then maybe something else, maybe, okay, well, okay, I, you know, like, if I got really good grades, that would fill my heart up, right? But, oh, wait a second, but my friend has a really great girlfriend. If I could just, wish I just had her, then maybe that will fill my heart up. Oh, wait a second, but my other friend, he got, he got, he made a lot of money, and then he got this really awesome car, and now everybody thinks he's so cool, and only if my life would have these things, and In one sense, you know, it seems so subtle. The human heart just wants good things, right? But there's such a subtle line between wanting good things and wanting those things to fill up your heart and fill up your life. And if you want them to fill up your life, then it's a God replacement. It is an idol. It is not just a sin, it's the sin. It's the most brokenness of, that goes right down to who we are and why the world is so completely awful and terrible. And so for this, we need not just a fix. And I'm hoping that you see as we go throughout this whole series that there's no like, if I just fix this, if, if I use personal discipline, if I use willpower, if I know that this is the right thing to do and this is the wrong thing to do, I'll just try to do the right thing and then my life will just turn out good. That is righteousness by the law. That's salvation by the law. And that's secular too. That's earthly wisdom. And it's never going to work. And what we're going to see and what you're finding, and I hope you're feeling, is all throughout, 
you cannot simply just use your power, your techniques, your righteousness. You can never, you, that we have actually no hope of really, truly being able to obey the law. And especially when you get to this particular commandment about covetousness, you find out your heart, my heart is so broken that unless a redeemer comes who can break the prison of our secularity and change the whole nature of our hopes and he could wash us of our sins and of our idolatry and he would die the death we deserve that all this covetous idolatry would die. Like we can't just say, I'm going to stop trying to do this. It actually has to die. We, in this sense, this person that's stuck in this terrible way that we, our old self, must die. And Christ came to die the death we deserve to die. And if we believe in him, those things can die. And we actually have a pathway, a hope to live in a new power, in a new way, with new desires on a new heart. So brothers and sisters, you know, there's the gospel. Maybe more than any other, I want you to use the gospel, to lean in on the gospel. And the gospel is one thing, but it is, it is, like, it is like a thousand blessings. The gospel is a, is, is a multifaceted jewel. That's another thing. And we must long for every one of those jewels. Every little piece of its shining glory. And all of that comes back to God through Jesus Christ. And so for the rest of my message today, what I really want to do is give you gospel glories. And I can't, obviously can't give you all, but I can offer you just a few that can help you that if you would go to these glories offered to us by our Savior, that you can have some, you have a pathway to victory, to live inside his newness, to live inside of a life that can defeat the old death idolatrous self that's stuck in this terrible thing of covetousness, okay? So let's go to part two. Desire the glory of Christ and his kingdom. And so I want to give you essentially two, two broad approaches. One is you have to desire something bigger, something so, you have to desire a glory that's more than just of the world. And that you can't just get from your neighbor, he's got it and I want that too. You have to get it from God. And the glory of Christ, come, glory of God comes from Christ. And so I want to take you to a verse. And so first, would you desire the glory of Christ? And then I want to point you toward something that is glories of his kingdom for the earth. So let's get into first. Let me offer you um, a promise, and I, and I pointed to this last week. So this is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. And this is a really incredible verse. And um, this is a pathway, this is a door toward having victory over covetous enslavement. So here it is. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Jesus Christ. So how can you get a glory? You have to look at Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, there's a glory. And most of us are like, okay, there's this person named Jesus and he you know, lived a long time ago. And like, I don't know exactly what he looked like, but there is a face. And it's great that there is a face of a man. And we can picture it that there's a man. And it becomes very, very close and real that 
God would place his glory into the face of the God-man, Jesus. And that he himself, only his redemption and his person, there is a glory, and there's so many glories, but what I want to do is I want to just give you one, okay? So I want to offer you some way of looking at Christ. There's so many ways that you and I must meditate on Christ and get to see him and know him in, in, a, in a fuller way. And if you get to see the beautiful things about him and then want some of that glory in your life, which is yours, you don't have to covet it. Christ wants to give you some of his glory. He wants to give you of his glory so that it can be yours. And I want to, I want to point toward one. And so um, there's a famous sermon uh, written by one of the really great theologian pastors of America, and that's Jonathan Edwards. And I read through this whole sermon. Man, it is a doozy. Um, if you guys think my sermons are long, <laughs> there's nothing compared to, to uh, Jonathan Edwards. And if you think my sermons have, have complexity and depth, I, I, I read this sermon and I was going like, man, my sermon just sounds like kindergarten talk compared to this sermon, right? So, but I lifted just one short portion the excellency of Christ is all about the different glories of God in Christ. That's what the passage says. That there's a light of the knowledge. We live in darkness. There's a light. There's a light in knowing, knowing the glory of God through the face of Christ. And I want to point to you, give you one. And it's a little bit of a lengthy passage, so please follow along with me. It is so good. All right, brothers and sisters. So here's Jonathan Edwards on the excellency of Christ. So here's what he says. In the person of Christ do meet together infinite majesty and transcendent meekness. Let me just stop for a moment. You're like, meekness. It's not a word we really use. And um, I actually want to give you a, <laughs> um, a definition of meekness. Oh, actually, so I went a little bit out of order. <laughs> um, there's a definition of meekness from the Merriam-Webster definition. You know, so I looked this up. You, know, it's, you could do this too. And there's multiple definitions. And this is the old definition of meek. And here it is. Enduring injury with patience and without resentment. Enduring injury with patience and without resentment. And today when we think of the word meek, we don't even like this word. It's, it's like meek is shy and, just, and weak. And you can be easily pushed around. Meek people get bullied. And so I don't want that. I don't want to be meek. But the older definition wasn't about being weak. It wasn't about being cowardly. It wasn't about simply being squashed. It was about the ability to endure with patience, injury, and yet without resentment. So let's go back to, let's go back to um, Jonathan Edwards. In the person of Christ do meet together infinite majesty, and transcendent meekness. These again are two qualifications that meet together in no other person but Christ. And just for the sake of time, I went ahead and um, tried to uh, shrink some of what he said, right? For thereby seems to be signified a calmness and quietness of spirit arising from humility in mutable beings that are naturally liable to be put into a ruffle by the assaults of a tempestuous and injurious world. But Christ, being both God and man, has both infinite majesty 
and superlative meekness. Let's just stop for a moment. When we think about people, if they endure, what do you think of a person? Um, do you, this, is the, this is what, if you don't understand that, the language, what is a mutable, a mutable being means a changeable being. That means inside of us, our soul, it's like we're always shifting and flying back and forth. The winds blow this way and we blow this. You know, we're up, we're down, we're up, we're down. You feel good, we feel bad. You feel righteousness, you feel anger. But God, God is not this way. His character does not change. And his beauty and his wisdom, it is steadfast and faithful forever. And Christ, he has the spirit. He has a calmness and quietness of spirit, which arises from humility and utter strength, not weakness. And instead, he allowed himself to come into what we deal with. We are mutable beings. We are changeable beings. We are like flit around in the world. And our world is this way. We are liable to be put into a ruffle. This is the way Edwards put it. By the assaults of a tempestuous and injurious world. So if the world has a storm and it injures you, how do you react? How do we react? Well, apparently, if the injury is bad enough, we cry out and scream and moan and all our self-righteousness comes out, resentment comes out. And um, it's happening in some of the most terrible ways in our country right now, where literally there are things being burned down and there are little wars that are happening. And this, but not Christ. He has more. This is a glory that is of his. And it is a glory that you and I can be gifted with. Could you desire this from him? Could you desire this glory more than somebody else's car or somebody else's good, good looks or somebody else's girlfriend or wife or a boyfriend? Could you desire this heavenly, infinite glory from Jesus? Let me go on. Christ was a person of infinite majesty. So not just infinite and superlative meekness, but infinite majesty. It is he that is terrible out of his holy places, who is mightier than the noise of many waters, yes, than the mighty waves of the sea. His eyes are as a flame of fire from whose presence and from the glory of whose power the wicked shall be punished with everlasting destruction. He is the blessed and only potentate, that means absolute ruler, the king of kings and lord of lords who has heaven for his throne and the earth for his footstool and is the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and whose dominion there is no end. And we know that these are the things of God and we can't have these things, but these are the things that we typically want. I wish we could have power. I wish I could just crush my enemies. <laughs> we grasp after power in a sinful way, in an idolatrous way. But could you possibly actually be given something more like his meekness? A power to deal with the, the assaults of a tempestuous and injurious world. And he puts both these things together. Christ, if we ever had this much power, we would become just completely obnoxious and horrible. No human being could be given this kind of power because we would be so oppressive 
and awful and self-righteous. And we see this. We see this all the time. Somebody becomes a billionaire. <laughs> uh, the one that comes to my mind is, there's a guy who owns my favorite baseball team, the Oakland A's, and he laid off a bunch of people to save a million dollars when he's worth $2 billion. And that seemed like a good idea to him. I'm worth $2 billion, and I lay off to save a million dollars, lots of people's lives, to save a million dollars. And, um, but don't think he's so bad if you had $2 billion and you had as much power as him, we would be not unlike him. But Jesus, he combines both the majesty and the superlative weak meekness. So let me finish the quote. And yet he, that is Christ, was the most marvelous instance of meekness and humble quietness of spirit that ever was. For there was never such an instance seen on earth of a meek behavior under injuries and reproaches and toward enemies. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. He had a wonderful spirit of forgiveness, was ready to forgive his worst, his worst enemies, not just his lightest enemies, but his worst, and prayed for them with fervent and effectual prayers. Brothers and sisters, this isn't just the righteousness of a man. It is the righteousness of the God-man. And he did this for you and for me. And he did this because he wanted us to have this kind of glory. And he offered this not just as a model, but as a power. A power that we can have if we would live in faith, united to have his heart, and have the power of his life, as we put it in our church, new life in Christ. Would you want this part of the life of Christ? Infinite majesty married to superlative meekness. So that if you and I, if you were to start to have success in your life, and you start to have power in your life, and you start, you, you, know, you, 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 you get good things start occurring to you, instead of becoming monstrously prideful and oppressive and self-serving, Instead, you can have something more. You'd be married toward this incredible kind of meekness and you can serve in the world. Could you want that? Could you want that? Brothers and sisters, this is a glory in Christ. This can be ours. Could you ask God to take you to that? Let's go to a second one. There's a glory of his kingdom. That's the glory. I just gave you the glory of Christ's person. Let me give you a glory of his kingdom. There's so many more glories. I, I had so many choices this week. But I want to give you the glory of his kingdom. And so let me give you a verse, famous verse from one of my favorite songs. Um, and so uh, I urge you to memorize this verse, learn that song. And here's the verse. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is a command from Jesus. And all these things will be added to you. And here's the context. What are all these things? In, this is Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. And all these things, are, you know what it's about? It's about money, clothes, earthly goods. That's the context of this passage. And the way this verse wraps up, Jesus gives this command. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. 
That's what you should seek. And then these other earthly things that we so regularly covet and we want this to fill up our life, he says, then he'll actually add these things to you if you will not be so covetous. Instead, seek bigger things, greater things. So there's a glory of God and he wants to put them into a kingdom. And so, you know, there's this great, there's this great prayer that Jesus taught us. And many of you know this prayer and it goes like this, our father who art in heaven, hallowed, that is be holy, be set apart is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done where? On earth. Your kingdom come on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. So we cannot, we not simply just desire heaven or simply desire the glorious qualities of Christ for me. We should want things of his kingdom, of his kingdom to come down here on earth. That is what Christ commands us to seek, to desire. Not just earthly things that we covet from other people, not just filled with envy and greed and, and like adulterous lust towards some other person, but instead the glories of Christ's kingdom. And let's, let's talk about this. You know, we, we mourned about this and we confessed this sin that our church is often filled with a small scope of Christ's righteousness and of the gifts of his kingdom. And this past week, you know, we, had a, we found out you know, I, I shared with you this, this announcement, this um, African-American. He's a brother. He's in our family. And, you know, as sure as Jesus is real, you and I can one day go and meet him and embrace this brother. And he was killed in a horribly awful and unjust manner. And the pain of this is just completely being unleashed in our society right now. And... Um, is there even a way? There's so many cynical people. I would say for generations upon generations, the church has operated in what I would call a kind of like, a, a, a kind of market segmentation. White people reach white people. Black people reach black people. Rich white people reach rich white people. Poor black people just reach poor black people. So the church always is set into a racial ethnic ghetto. And it's always about small things. It's about, you know, like, Get some Jesus, and then, you know, let's then move about our life seeking for a nice life, a religious life with covetous desires. But what about justice? What about a more whole society? What about even more than justice? What about, what about shalom? Shalom, which means peace, which means more than peace. It means the whole flourishing. And, you know, when... When and the Israelites went into exile and they were no longer in Israel anymore, and Israel was destroyed, and there was no longer, they, they were not, no, no longer, the temple was destroyed, and they were no longer being ruled by God. They were being ruled by the Babylonians, a wicked, godless people. They were in, a, in an alien culture. You know what God commanded them in the book of Jeremiah? He said, Seek the shalom, the peace of the city. Brothers and sisters, will we seek the shalom? of our city and of our country and of our neighbors. And there's a gaping, horrible place of the violation of shalom when it comes to race and culture and justice and unity and forgiveness. And isn't it possible that through the kingdom of God that there can be a pathway toward a newer kind of unity a newer kind of embrace. 
Can you begin to allow yourself to dream a new kind of a city and a new kind of America? And I'm really quite certain that whether it is left-wing secular righteousness or right-wing secular righteousness, there is no pathway to this. But through Christ, there is. And I want to I want to I want to go back to what I just said to show you just how much of the glories of Christ tie together. So I'm going to go back to what Jonathan Edwards taught that there's an infinite majesty in Jesus conjoined to a superlative meekness. And if you and I would believe in both, you would believe in his infinite majesty for his kingdom and then also believe in the superlative meekness that we could share in that and then offer something to our neighbors on deep, deep, broken race brokenness. The lack of justice and the lack of unity. Deep anger. And so that on these types of issues, we are absolutely liable to be put into a ruffle by the assaults of, te- of a tempestuous and injurious world. Apart from God, that's all the world can ever be, tempestuous and injurious. And so let me put it to you this way. Because Jesus has infinite majesty and he has defeated sin and death and his kingdom will ultimately win. See, this is him. He He is a king whose kingdom will absolutely win. Do you believe that? Or is the kingdom of this earth more important to you and the pie in the sky stuff? And so you're not thinking about your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. But if you really believe that we have a king whose kingdom will ultimately win, we can hope and we can seek and contend for a world with justice, and shalom that can never be broken. But in a world apart from Christ, justice and shalom is impossible. But with Christ, there's just, just, there can be signs of justice and shalom break into this broken world through his kingdom. Indeed, it may even seem stupid in this world where seeking things like justice and shalom can even be painful and thankless. All the cynical neighbors, right-wing versions and left-wing versions, and all the different ethnicities have different versions of this. Why, why, why try to do that kind of thing? Multi-ethnic church, reaching different racial... Eth- I mean, like, oh, come on. We can't get anywhere on that. Let's just stick to the old game plan. And we'll just keep... Just do this. We'll just gather people like our skin color, and that's good enough, right? No. So, that attitude... It does not believe in the gospel. It is against the kingdom. But because Jesus is a king that cannot defeat it, should we not put that away? The hope is that it is a battle, this battle that has a fruit and a reward that will extend into eternity for souls who have infinite worth. They are not small persons who will merely be downtrodden and forgotten. George Floyd is not just simply a victim. In this world, he's a victim. But in the kingdom, he is not. In the kingdom, he shares through union with Christ. His death will have meaning. And through his death, there can be victory for Jesus. 
And there can be a new unity through God's people offered to our country and to our cities. George Floyd, in his death, our brother can fight and contend with Christ for something more. He's not merely a casualty of the brokenness and injustice of the world, but a brother whose soul and worth the Lord keeps. With him and Jesus, we can have something more, the majesty of Christ. Now let me offer you this. But because Jesus has superlative meekness, we can in and through him suffer and incur all manners of costs in order to seek justice, but without self-righteousness and without resentment and without pride and wrath against other people because we're going to fail too and we're not going to have all the answers, but we can have part of Christ's glory in his heart, a superlative meekness. With him, we can have a courageous and persevering, steadfast patience, mercy, and understanding for the many ways that we fail and others will fail, and how we will experience pain and disappointment and wounds if we seek a greater justice and seek a greater racial healing and unity for a much bigger shalom than usually our world even thinks is possible. If we can take on the superlative meekness of Christ. Brothers and sisters, I challenge you to believe in the gospel in a new way. And this whole week I've been thinking about maybe I've just been a really bad pastor. And um, maybe I just haven't, don't have a big enough faith. And we can apply the gospel to a bigger salvation and a bigger kingdom. Now let me close by offering you one more, one more hope and one more power to help you defeat the power of um, covetousness. And I want to talk about um, something that's been sitting in my mind for weeks now. I, I've been looking for this quote and I can't find it. Um, there's a quote from C.S. Lewis where he said something to this effect, that there's a proper joy of the inferior in the pleasure of the presence of the superior. Let me say that again. The proper joy of the inferior and the pleasure in the presence of the superior. Something like this. You know what that means? And I don't know if most of you ever think about this. There's a joy in life when you meet somebody who's so much better than you, who has a glory and a goodness that's so above yours. And if they take pleasure in you, <laughs> they're proud of you. They look upon you and says, oh, yes, that, that was good. You ever had that happen? Maybe when you were a kid and uh, you did well, you know, in class in a special way and your teacher called you and said, oh, you, hey, Joe, that was so good. And I'm so proud of you. And your heart filled up with a great joy. Or, you know, maybe husbands, your wife complimented you. Yeah, let's be honest, our wives are very often our superiors. <laughs> and when she took pleasure in you, your heart filled up. But this is something that we ought to desire in life 
more than covetousness. That we should seek God being pleased with us. And you and I can taste that pleasure in his presence. And when it happens, it will fill your heart up and make the infinite emptiness overflow with him. And I want to tell you a story. I want to close with a story. Um, I wish there had been many more instances, but I want to tell you one story where I have tasted something like this. And I want to encourage you to look for this too in your life. And so I'll tell you a story to close. Um, for those of you who are maybe new to our church, you know, Revive was planted out of a church um, for about eight or nine years. We had an extended, and we're still doing this, we had an extended ministry on a Native American reservation. And we set very large goals of the kingdom to reach young people on this uh, Paiute reservation in California. And we call it Bishop. And um, about two years ago, um, we, had, we, we, had the, we offered a chance for some of the young people that we knew to become baptized. And um, a young girl, um, her name is Blanca. Blanca is somebody um, I've known for many, many years since she was very, very little. And I think she's, that was like two years. I think she was about 13 when she came forward. And she said, Pastor Susan, I want to get baptized. And so um, I said, sure. And so one of the, the, the blessings of being the pastor is you get to listen to people's story to see if they really believe in Jesus and are born again in Christ. And you get a chance to, this is one of the great perks of this job. And so I sat down with Blanca and I said, Blanca, tell me, um, you know, how it is that you came to know Jesus and tell me your story. Now, Blanca's, um, I want to tell you a little background about her. Blanca comes from a broken home as very common on the reservation. And um, she does not know her father. Well, I think she maybe does know her father, but doesn't have a personal relationship with him because he's gone. And um, she has an older brother and uh, we love him very much too. And we've known him. And her mother's a Christian. Um, her mother's a Christian and um, she knows Jesus, but her mother's a lonely soul and she has a lot of pain in her heart and um, she, kinds, she tends to follow Jesus and sometimes not follow Jesus. And uh, she has an alcohol issue. And um, this is in no way a knock on her. Sometimes she can be a difficult person. We love Blanca's mother, but she can be difficult. And, um, and so just being honest about that, even though I'm not trying to knock her in any way, please hear my spirit. And um, this is the way Blanca grew up. And so she shared this story that she, when she was four years old, her parents had split up and she had gone to live with her uncle. And her uncle, see, her uncle wasn't married either. Her uncle had a girlfriend. And um, her uncle's girlfriend believed in Jesus. So Blanca is a Native American, um, at least on her mother's side. I'm not sure about her father. And, um, and um, this girlfriend of her uncle told her about Jesus. So just try to think about this. You are, just watch your parents, you watch your dad walk out of your life. You are now living with neither your mother or your father. You're living with your uncle. And now there is this kind woman in your life who is not really even your relative. And she is introducing to you to a person 
who's saying, we'll be there with you no matter what. And his name is Jesus. And that was the first time she heard about Jesus. And later, she started regularly going to church when she started living with her grandmother. And there, she started to believe in Jesus as her Savior and her King. And um, when I heard this story, and this is where I want to shift gears a little bit. When I heard this story, I, um, I had to really control myself when I was sitting with Blanca, listening to her. I, I almost started weeping when I heard this story. We had come into Blanca's life when she was a little older than this. And she and her family were very glad that our church was there to serve the Native American community and to proclaim the gospel. And she loved our teenagers and loved you know, our VBSs and ministries. And so she really looked forward. And some, there's some years she didn't even get to see us. So like, and um, when she said this, um, this is what happened. I um, started listening to this and I thought, here we are, we know Jesus. We're like these great do-gooding savior type people and we're going to do some of these great works for you know, Native Americans. And you know what, instead I sat there and I realized, no, Jesus has already been here. And Jesus has loved this girl. Jesus in all his infinite majesty and his superlative meekness has entered into this girl's life. And he has been with her for years, well before we ever showed up. And because Jesus has loved her, he called us onto into the poverty of this reserva reservation. I, I, I remember it like it's flashing through my mind these arguments I had with Jesus when I, as a leader of our church, I did not want to do this. I was like, I don't want to do this, Jesus. Go to a Native American reservation with a bunch of like, Clueless Koreans and with our do-gooder attitude. I don't want to do that, Jesus. But Jesus said, no, you go. Take the church and go. And we went and we made so many mistakes with all our man-centered righteousness. But at that moment, when Blanca told me this story, I sense the father said, Susan, this is why you had to come. And so good job, Susan. Good job of your church family to come. And I'm pleased with you. And as Blanca shared this story, I felt so poor and yet so rich. I could feel all my horrible privilege start to die out. Because the Father said, if you would seek after the things of Christ and all his foolish plans, his pleasure washed over me by his Spirit. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has given you a pathway to have the Father wash over his pleasure. Would you seek this? And he'll give this to you by grace. Seek this and make your life full when God himself is glad with you and proud of you and is pleased with you. Let's pray.
We often choose our autonomy and our powers and only what we see and what we know. And what we know and what we see is built on blindness and the imprisonment of a small world with small glories. Building our kingdoms and not your kingdom. Seeking to please ourselves and not be your pleasure. But today, Lord, give us repentance. Give us faith. Give us a step toward being attracted and desiring the great glories of you, God, through Jesus, of his kingdom. And may we be long, may we so deeply long for your pleasure to wash over us and fill us where we are of such emptiness and with such lostness. Instead, to be filled with the greatest things of heaven, your pleasure and your joy. Help us along for these things and to grow and live in your kingdom come and to bask in your glory, Lord Jesus, and have the love of the Father all over us by your spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.